Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Cass, I have a question for you. I would like to know that um, when you were in high school, did your school ever put on themed dress-up days? Because my school definitely did. Not exactly, but I was in drama, so naturally there were many a dress-up days. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Whether or not it was prescribed from school. (laughs) Well, I have some hilarious photos from school dress-up days, like One day we had a 60s day and my girlfriends and I tie-dyed t-shirts. In the photo, I'm wearing a bandana on my head. And actually looking back at the photo now, I think I was a little bit confused with what was the 60s and what was the 70s, but we had a really good time nonetheless. And um, and another year for a 1950s scene, we ransacked our theater department's costume closet, my girlfriends and I, and we were on the hunt for poodle skirts, which is exactly what we're going to chat about in this week's mini-soap. Yes, we received a couple of requests actually from both listeners Jen Cummings and Maggie Pollan for an episode on the origins of the poodle skirt. And who knew what an all-American success story this would turn out to be, April? I know. Researching this one was really fun. And it begins with a 20-something Julie Lynn, who was living and working as an opera singer in Los Angeles during the 1940s. And Cass, her talents as an actress were even enlisted by the Marx Brothers during World War II, because when they were going around entertaining the troops, she was part of of their, like, sketch series that they were doing, which is kind of cool. And really, you should see pictures of her. You understand why they hired her, because she was stunningly beautiful. She's like that perfect pinup girl, you know, the the makeup, the hair, the clothes, the whole thing. Which no doubt attracted many a suitor, but it was Philip Charlotte Julie Lynn chose to marry sometime near the end of the war. Fast forward a couple of years and the young couple had a bit of a rough patch when Philip lost his job in 1947. And some of our listeners may remember why this year, 1947, is especially significant in terms of fashion history, because of course it was the launch of Christian Dior's new look. Yes. In February of that year, Dior debuted a collection which featured voluminous skirts, which required staggering yardages of fabric. And he also lowered hemlines about six inches for a day. And this new silhouette was enthusiastically embraced around the world and ultimately became the dominant look of the 1950s. It's a rare moment in the history of fashion when fashion pivots on a dime, but that's just what happened in the wake of the debut of the new look. Women's wardrobes were rendered obsolete practically overnight. And this is actually something we are exploring in more depth on next week's full-length episode, so we're not going to go into too much detail here. Yes, and Cass, few women at this time were immune to the charms of the new look, and Julie Lynn was one of them. She very much wanted to keep up with the new fashions, despite the fact that she had little money for clothes at this moment. So she basically got creative. And for an upcoming Christmas party, she decided to make her own skirt that was very much in keeping with this new look silhouette. And she asked her mother, who happened to own a factory which utilized really wide widths of felt, she asked her mother for some fabric. And of course, being a mom, she gave it to her daughter. 
And aside from the felt being free from her mother's stash, Julie Lynn told reporters in 1952, quote, I cut it out of felt because I didn't know how to sew. And that was the only material I knew was wide enough to cut a complete circle skirt without any seams. And then she cut a hole for her waist and attached a simple waistband from felted felt scraps. She created whimsical Christmas motifs and appliqued them to the skirt. And apparently her Christmas circle skirt was a smashing success at the party and she made several more and sold them to a boutique in Beverly Hills. This boutique sold out of the handful of skirts that Julianne had made and clamored to order more from her for the remainder of the holiday season. So post-holidays, they asked Julie if she could do other designs, particularly dogs, which were a popular motif at the time. And this is in part because the Westminster Dog Show was first televised publicly in 1948. So all of a sudden, all of this information about the wonderful diversity of dog breeds is now readily accessible to mainstream America. And cast people were super into all things dogs. But interestingly enough, the first of Julie Lynn's dog skirts were not poodle skirts. They were actually dachshund skirts. And quite clever. The skirt featured three dachshunds on leashes, two females and one male. One of the female dogs was flirty and the other seemingly stuck up. But the manner in which Julie Lynn placed the leashes on the skirt only allowed the male dog to reach the lady dog who was not at all (laughs) interested. She's playing hard to get. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, Julie also did similar motifs with Scotty dogs and of course, poodles. And clearly the poodles proved to be by far the most popular because we would not be sitting here talking about this today if this is not the case. Um, And there's a couple of reasons for this. One, the public awareness vis-a-vis Westminster, because prior to this time, raising and breeding purebred dogs had really been a pastime or a hobby for mainly wealthy and aristocratic women. And this was partially due to the fact of all the time and expense that was involved. I mean, really... All you have to do is open an issue of Vogue from the 1920s or the 1930s. And the whole front section of the magazine is devoted for advertisements. And they're mainly advertisements for resorts, spas, elite boarding schools for your children, and purebred dogs. The other reason was the increased presence of the poodle in the American media. In France, the poodle was a favored companion to many sophisticated and affluent French women. And in turn, in the U.S., this soon became a shorthand for Parisian chic. By the 1950s, full-blown poodle mania had broken out in the United States. Anyone who listens to Dressed regularly already knows that for centuries, Paris had been considered fashion's epicenter. You know, um, all eyes were always on Paris to set the new vogue. And not only fashion magazines, but also Hollywood propagated this cultural mythology. You know, for instance, in the much-beloved film Sabrina cast, Audrey Hepburn's character returns from her time in Paris with her pet poodle David in tow. And her Paris fashions and her French poodle were these really super smart visual cues to the audience as to her newly acquired worldliness as a woman. In the press, actresses Doris Day, Grace Kelly, and Joan Collins were also photographed in public accompanied by French poodles. And what's really interesting here is that the dogs were not always necessarily their own pets. So, so pervasive was the breed's association with the fashionable set, the Hollywood studios were arranging to have their actresses who were often at this time beholden to studio contracts, they were having them appear in public with the intention of being photographed by the press with 
poodles. I know. This is so cool. And also very cool is the fact that on more than one occasion during the 1950s, poodles actually accompanied models down the runway in fashion shows. I mean, can you get a more snuggly, <laughs> adorable accessory? It's, they were kind of like the ultimate fashion accessory in the 1950s. I know. And we've actually had a couple different requests about doing a uh, dogs and fashion history episode. So we'll consider that for the future. Pet clothes. <laughs> uh, Julie Lynn's Poodles designs took off like hotcakes and soon department stores were calling. The LA department store Bullock's Wilshire gave over their window displays to her skirts, which expanded dog motifs to include other story patterns like circus animals, Egyptian hieroglyphs, popular board games, birthday cakes replete with candles, and a whole host of other designs featuring fruits and flowers. And April, as you know, my family has been in the business of water lilies for over 50 years. And one of my favorites is this water lily skirt complete with the resident frog on a lily pad. I mean, pretty much all of these designs are freaking adorable. I'm a little bit obsessed with all of them. And apparently the public at that time also agreed because the demand became more than Julie Lynn alone could produce. She said, quote, I saved up a little money and opened my own factory and boom, I was in a mess. And Cass, apparently this was because she wasn't exactly business-minded. She said that she was very bad at math. And she also says, quote, mother hawked her diamond ring three weeks in a row to help me meet the payroll. All of this being said, whatever her money troubles were, this newly minted Julia Lynn Charlotte California label was a new hot commodity on the market. And it was not long before a New York dress manufacturer swooped into her aid. They invested in her company. They helped her sort out her operations. They improved the quality of the product and really helped her take her business to the next level. Soon, Julie Lynn Charlotte designs were available outside of California. They were stocked in high-end department stores such as Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus. Too much fanfare. And in 1951, then-Princess Elizabeth, a.k.a. the current Queen of England, chose to wear Charlotte's Romeo and Juliet theme skirt to a square dance put on in her honor in Canada. The black felt circle skirt was appliqued with green branches loaded with three-dimensional felt flowers, hearts, and rhinestones, while Romeo near the hem of the skirts looks wistfully up at Juliet on her balcony, which was placed near the wearer's hip. Julie Lynn's company was so successful by 1954, they moved to a new space, twice the size, and it had a factory, a showroom, and offices all on the premises. And they also began to make tops to pair with the very popular skirts. They had halter tops, they had sweaters, and they also made coordinating hats and handbags. And a little bit later on, they also started making dresses, bolero jackets, shawls, basically all things 1950s. And, you know, Cass, what happens next with this level of success... Of course, you know, you have to have knockoffs. Yep. Basically, if you flip open any major mail order catalog from the mid to late 50s, like Sears, for instance, you will certainly find these 
themed circle skirts. And not by Julie Lynn Charlotte, but by other manufacturers who are basically copying her concept. And these were in practice worn over bouffant petticoats. And these circle skirts became especially popular with high school and college-age girls, which I think is really the demographic that we still associate them with today. And Julie Lynn even went on to partner with the pattern company, Leading Designer Patterns, so girls could make their own skirts at home, which is very sweet. The homestone versions and knockoffs didn't seem to have much of a detrimental effect, however, on the Julie Lynn Charlotte label. And the label kept on producing fun, whimsical sportswear for the next few decades. And after falling in love with Mexico on a vacation in 1980, Julie Lynn bought a manufacturing business in Mexico City and produced her line there until the massive earthquake hit in 1985. And sadly, her operations were destroyed in the quake, and this was a huge blow. And after nearly 40 years in business, the Julie Lynn Charlotte brand simply could not recover following the collapse of their factory. But that does not necessarily mean that the label simply faded into obscurity. It remains highly collectible today. If you can even find one, which they're extremely hard to find, a Charlotte themed circle skirt would set you back anywhere from $800 to $1,000 today in today's vintage market, which is incredible. So Jen and Maggie, I hope that answer your listener questions about the origin of the poodle skirt. And I would like to give a special thank you to another dress listener, Lizzie Bramlett, who interviewed Julie Lynn about 10 years ago when um, Julie Lynn was in her late 80s. And so some of the information that I used in this episode came from that interview. And Cass, I, we, you and I have talked about this, but Lizzie also very kindly gave me the last known email for Julie Lynn. And she would probably be about 96 years old this year. I did reach out to this email address, but I did not receive a response. So Julie Lynn, wherever you may be, please know what a lasting mark you have made on the history of fashion. Yes, thank you, Julie Lynn. And thank you to Jen and Maggie. Yet another fascinating fashion history mystery question that taught us both so very much. I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider incorporating a little DIY in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. If you'd like to submit a question or suggestion for an upcoming Fashion History Mystery episode, you can message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. This is, of course, also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Be sure to tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.